This is episode four of Cinescope, and I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Aaron White to talk about one of his favorite films, Blade Runner. Aaron, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on. Uh, It was sort of a last minute thing just because of scheduling with next week's hosts. But uh, I'm glad to have you on because that was always the plan to have you on eventually. So how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I've recently started my own podcast, which is how we met. Yes. Um, Very cool interaction there. Um, It's one of my favorite things about podcasting is the interaction with listeners and other podcasters. Um, It's really a community, which is not known by a lot of people unless you're in it. Uh But the support that fellow podcasters give each other is pretty incredible. So I started my own with my best friend uh, in April called Feelin' Film, just because we wanted to talk positively about movies, which is something that resonates with you as well. And, uh, you know, I've always had a love for film going back probably, I don't know, toward my late teens. I wasn't one of those kids that was watching auteur films when he was eight or nine years old. Right. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) you know, I liked my blockbusters back then. But yeah, so I just, I love movies and uh, loved talking about them and this had been on my bucket list for a while and so I went for it and here I am. Yeah, I actually shouted out to you in our preview episode uh, because when I was first starting out, I had talked to a mutual friend of ours and he said, you know, your podcast idea sounds great, but it sort of sounds like you're pitching this other podcast that my friend made. And of course he was talking about your podcast, Feel and Film, and uh, we talked about it and we just decided, you know, the more positivity, the better. So if you want a podcast that's similar to Cinescope in outlook and positivity, definitely give Feel and Film a try. Thanks, man. Yeah, I think we, we coexist pretty well. We, we kind of take a little bit of a different focus, but we have the same uh, end goal in mind with the, the positive uh, slant. So it's good stuff. Yeah. So before we move on to our discussion, I want to go ahead and shout out everybody who's written a review for the show on iTunes. So shout outs to Joe Darnell, TJ Draper, my good friend Melanie, Eric Woods, my friend Ethan, and then two people who I don't know, C. Somo Family and Zephroff. And then, of course, Aaron, you've left a review too, which is much appreciated. So your podcast is currently on the new and noteworthy section on TV film category on iTunes. So how exactly did you get there? You know, my guess is because people rated and reviewed us. I I honestly have (laughs) no idea, though. I mean, it happened one day really quickly after we started. And I had, just like you're doing now, I had a lot of uh, friends and some of our initial kind of foundational listeners that that started with us right in the beginning and stuck with us Uh had jumped on and written these great reviews. And all of a sudden, we popped up on that page and it just started you know, snowballing, getting us uh, more listeners and being able to join the conversation with us. And it, and it's a great thing. So I highly, highly recommend that if you're listening to this show and you enjoy it, please go spend just a couple minutes, write some words about it. You can't understand enough how much help that does for a podcast. Yeah. So if you want us to get attention, just like Feelin' Film has gotten very deserved attention, then 
definitely go into iTunes, rate and review, and hopefully we'll get the same recognition. So now let's move on to our movie discussion. We are talking about Blade Runner, of course, which was released on June 25th of 1982 and was directed by Ridley Scott, who, of course, also directed Alien, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, American Gangster, Prometheus, and most recently, The Martian. It was written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, but it was based on a book called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. The music is by Vangelis, who wrote the music for Chariots of Fire, which everybody knows that main theme of Chariots of Fire, and also known for the original Cosmos TV series music, which was made by Carl Sagan, which is, of course, recently rebooted by Seth MacFarlane and Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's scored by different people, though. This movie stars Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, Daryl Hannah, William Sanderson, and Edward James Olmos. So, Aaron, what was your first experience with this movie? Well, I don't remember my first time <laughs> seeing the movie. And and it's it's one of those interesting experiences. A lot of times your favorite movie, you know, you have that history with it where you, you remember where you were, when you first saw it, and all the details of the world around you. It's just like a snapshot in time. Uh-huh. But I don't have that. Um, I actually, what I do remember is I was pretty young, so I think I was in my teens, and I recall not liking it that much. Um, I used to love old sci-fi in the 80s, you know, your things like your Star Wars and your Star Trek movies, and this just felt very light on action to me. It didn't feel like it was science fiction-y enough uh, for what I was used to, so I didn't really care for it. It's kind of funny, because now... I actually feel the exact opposite of that. And when old me would say, well, there's not enough action and therefore it's not science fiction, I now you know, see that there's two different things here. There's a science fantasy and there's science fiction. And what's really science fiction is the themes of this film. And they have become my favorite concept to be explored in movies. Just the idea of AI and human creation of artificial intelligence, what can happen when that occurs, and the concept of what does it mean to be human – and this is just, this is my absolute, you know, top of the tree for me. There is no other film that can top this one. It is my favorite science fiction film, of which I love many. And it set the bar very, very high. Okay. Well, this movie is yet another movie that I had not seen before. So I watched it for the first time last night. I've actually owned the Blu-ray since this past Christmas and just hadn't gotten around to it yet. So... This gave me an opportunity to check it out. Well, I watched it and I liked it, but I felt like I was supposed to be walking away with more than I did. And it wasn't that I didn't think it was communicating it well. It was that I couldn't wrap my head around everything. And so I said, okay, this was based on a book. So tomorrow I'm going to read the book and then I'm going to watch the movie again. So that was my day today was I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick and got into Deckard's head a little bit more. That, that's, of course, the benefit of reading a book versus watching something is you're in that character's mind. And so that really helped. And I was able to read a little bit online as well and then watch the movie again, as in like less than an hour ago is when I finished and uh, really walked away with a lot more this time around. And I really do like it, but I do think it's going to take several more rewatches for me to walk away with everything this film has to offer because it's pretty substantial. That is dedication, my friend. I, to, I just want to like clap for you right now because I am impressed with your research and your effort put into this. Um, you're right. It does get better with rewatches. 
there's so much richness in the themes. There are so many kind of peripheral characters that we hardly even see or we don't get a lot of screen time or dialogue from that have substantially meaningful roles and things to say about them. Mm -hmm. And you just don't get all of that in a first viewing or and even a second. Like you said, you do get more of it. But I think that it, it's a film that likely will grow with most people over time. Maybe not everybody, but, you know, those that like it in the first place, at least. Right. And, you know, I said I read the book, but the movie doesn't follow the book exactly. So while it does explore similar themes and the basic concepts are all the same, there is a lot more to the book and there is a lot more to the movie. They're separate. But the real benefit was really just getting into Deckard's head and understanding him a little bit more. So uh, moving on, normally we would talk about story now, but we, we talked ahead of time and said, you know, the story here isn't really the focus. The focus is the themes and the questions and the ideas presented here and the characters. And so we're going to move right onto our character section. So what character do you want to start with? Well, for me, my favorite character in the film, eh, I don't know if I should use the word favorite, but I'd like to talk about Gaff because he is what most people would consider almost an insubstantial character. He's just hardly there. This is Edward James Olmos's character, first of all. Right. Uh, and those who know Edward James Olmos probably know him as his amazing turn on Battlestar Galactica as Admiral Adama. But, you know, he's much younger here, although he looks almost the exact same and sounds almost the exact same. You know, this is a character who has some of the most impactful lines, despite getting, what, five minutes total screen time, maybe in the entire movie. If yeah, that, possibly even less. Yeah. Even if that. But Gaff gives us a lot of the... Are we spoiling things, by the way? Yes, this is Dive In Deep. Okay. Just wanted to make <laughs> sure we, we mentioned that before I say what I'm about to say. Uh, a lot of the talk about this film revolves around the idea of is Deckard a replicant? That's the big question people like to talk about. Gaff is the one who gives us the majority of our clues to whether or not that might be the case. He has some amazing dialogue lines that just, just really hit home. Things like, at one point he's talking to Deckard and he says, you've done a man's job, sir. And you just think to yourself, well, why would you, why would you phrase it like that? What would be the reason to do that? To tell him he's done a man's job. He is a man, or, or is he? And then the most important line that I believe he uses is at the end of the film when he says, too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? And that gives us one of our most impactful takeaways from the film, I think. One of the biggest questions that we can wrestle with. At least that's what it does for me. He presents me with an opportunity to, to look inside and go, okay, well, oh crap, what, what, what is that? What does that mean? And, and do, are we really living? And and what does it mean to live? And all of these questions come up. And so I think it's really impressive that he does so much with so little time. He's always kind of suspicious of Deckard when we see him. Uh, he's kind of got this look about him and he's, he's very wary. He's always watching him with this, this certain eyes on him, this dark, uh, like looking down under his hat. And I just really love the character. I think that um, he's well done, well created. And uh, for the amount of time we get to be with him, he his impact is huge. Right. And of course, one of the biggest arguments for whether Deckard is a human or a replicant is the, the unicorn origami at the end of the film. We should specify, we're talking about the final cut of this movie, um, which does include the unicorn dream sequence in its entirety. The idea that maybe 
Gaff has seen the implants that Deckard may or may not have if he is a replicant and was sort of hinting towards us, hey, you're a replicant and I'm going to leave this clue by leaving this unicorn that references this dream that you had earlier in the movie. And if you look at the cover of the 30th anniversary Blu-ray that I have, uh, it actually has the origami unicorn on it. Personally, I don't know if I see Deckard as a replicant or not. In the book, it's actually made clear that Deckard is a human. And I don't know, maybe my opinion will evolve over time. What really matters to me, though, is the fact that it's in question. It's ambiguous. I think the fact that the movie asks the question and doesn't make it clear cut is what makes Deckard's identity interesting. Oh, yeah, I would definitely agree with you. Uh, he's If he is or isn't, and we know one way or the other, it loses all of its power. Right. If he's not, then we get to, A, take a side and have something to talk about, which is fun. B, we get to look at him as both and consider what that means. You can watch the entire movie and and get two different reads of it if you watch it from a perspective of saying to yourself, Deckard is a human. That is my focus. That's what I'm going to believe. And so then you can judge his actions based that way. Or you can watch and say, well, I think he's a replicant. And you can judge his actions based on that. And And it changes things. Let's go ahead and talk more about Deckard in depth. So one of the things I wrote down is there's this idea that he's losing his humanity over the course of the film and over the course of his career, while the replicants are, of course, becoming more and more human. We have this Nexus 6 model that is almost indistinguishable. In fact, it takes more than 100 questions for Deckard to realize that uh, Rachel is actually a replicant rather than a human, whereas he is being faced with this decision is what I'm doing right? Is what I'm doing helping? Is it the human thing to do? He has this lack of sympathy when he robs Rachel of her humanity. There's a scene where it's after they've already left the corporation and they're back at Deckard's place and she's paid him a visit because she realizes that Tyrell, her master creator, has said, yeah, she's a replicant. But she doesn't believe this because she has memories. And all of a sudden, Decker goes, you know, you have this memory and this memory and this memory. And I know these things because they were implanted in you and they were not real. And it's like, wow, he he just he's so insensitive about it. And in return, she cries. So we have this human being incredibly insensitive and lacking empathy, which is sort of the whole basis for the Voight-Kampf test that distinguishes replicants from non-replicants. And here we have the replicant in the situation shedding a tear because her reality has been dropped. So we have this idea that Deckard is losing his humanity while the replicants are becoming more human. Yep. That is exactly what I take out of it as well. The same thing happens with Roy as, as the film goes on, uh, he's becomes, he started as he's created to be a killer, right? Which is he's, I forget, I forget what they say. I think he's a commando type or something. Uh, which is, by the way, very odd. It's one of the weirder things about the films to me is that we have created these warring type of robots or androids and put them on a planet to do slave labor. It's like, well, if we really needed someone to go out there and, and you know, break l- big rocks into little rocks, why did we create uh, replicants with these great physical, uh, the abilities and aptitudes for uh, combat? It was kind of a curious choice. I wonder, does the book explain that at all, by the way? Well, in the book, the replicants aren't necessarily created for war or that kind of labor. The way it works in the book is because of World War Terminus, uh, the Earth is largely unpopulable. 
And so they try and move people off planet, off world, which they do reference in this movie. But the incentive for moving off world is you get a free replicant, which they actually just call an android or Andes in the book. And it's basically just like your personal assistant kind of thing. So they're sort of repurposed for the movie here. But yeah, that's how it's how it differs. Interesting. Um, So what I was saying about Roy is it's simply, you know, he he has a progressive story arc, whereas some of the other replicants don't. I think he and Rachel are the primary ones that do. You know, Pris stays pretty basic to her programming. Her programming is a pleasure model. She uses that type of activity to seduce and manipulate Sebastian. We see her, you know, painting herself and then, you know, being obviously emotionally attached to Roy, but we don't really see her progressing much. The same goes with Zora. We we don't get a lot of Zora at all, but there's just not a lot of progression there. Leon, not so much either, even though he has one of the best scenes in the entire film. But Roy, we get to see just on this mission and it's this idea that he's self-aware right he's completely self-aware but he has no rights he doesn't want to be a slave anymore and he goes through this whole arc leading up to killing his creator and then ultimately giving mercy before his death which is kind of when he reaches his most human moment exactly Uh, and so he ends the film much like you're saying about rachel he ends the film being human and blurring that line between which one of these two is really more human? So I love that dichotomy and that uh, the way that it plays with that throughout the film. Rachel actually says something that speaks to that. She has a great line of dialogue where she says, I'm not in the business. I am the business. Yeah, the, the whole tagline for it's introduced at the beginning of the film where the Nexus 6 models are described as more human than human. And as the film progresses, we see that that's more true than Tyrell actually sort of realizes because we have these androids experiencing very, very human emotions, whereas our our main human character is sort of lacking in that department. And so we see moments when Rachel is very emotionally vulnerable and we see that fantastic speech at the end of the movie where Roy has just saved Deckard. He's been taunting him by saying, you know, you're so unsportsmanlike. You're you're the opposite of what a man should be right now. And it culminates in, I'm going to save your life. That's what a man is. The, the difference between being a man and not is saving rather than destroying life. And the man, that quote is like heartbreaking where he says he's disappearing like tears in rain and then time to die. And wow, it's, it's so good. It's an iconic scene. I mean, it is, it's what everybody knows mostly from the movie. You know, it's actually improv. I don't know if you were aware of that, but Rugger Howard made that up, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, it <laughs> um, is. Uh, because I mean, none of that stuff really, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense when he's talking about sea beams and, you know, these gates of Tarsus or whatever he calls them. And all of that. But it's just, it's so poetic. It's like so artful, you know, which is not what you would expect from an android or something that's not human. You would you would attribute art to humanity again. But yet here he is being very poetic. He's able to express those emotions in a way that our human characters just can't. I mean, Deckard continually shows a lack of ability to express emotion. You know, he drinks and he's very sullen and alone. And even when he really wants to pursue Rachel 
uh, when he brings her back to his place, it almost happens in a violent manner where he like slams her against the wall, shuts the door to stop her from leaving. And it's like, it's like he can't communicate. He's unable to act human, like you said, where she is. Right. Well, for me, that scene when he's sort of forcing himself on Rachel, the first time was a little jarring. But when I watched it the second time earlier, it the way I viewed it was he was sort of desperate for a bit of humanity. He was falling in love with this android and he wanted her to express that emotion for him and to sort of ground her rather than being this impossible contraption creation kind of thing and become more human saying, you know, I want you, I want you to touch me. And that's the way I viewed it the second time at least was, yes, he was rough about it, but he was also sort of desperately trying to find humanity in her to sort of bring him to her level and to justify his feelings for her. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I definitely don't think it was meant in a harmful manner or that kind of violence. It's just a, you know, he's jarring is a great word to use for it, actually, I think. Uh, But she is just a, she's a fantastic character and, and Roy is a fantastic character. Some of the other ones I like, I like JF Sebastian a lot. I think, you know, it's it's very unique. He has that Methuselah syndrome, you know, where he's 55 years old, but he looks 25. And it's it's kind of a tragic situation. You know, he lives in this huge mansion. He makes tons of money because he's a big wig working for Tyrell, making the, the replicants. And yet, you know, Pris asks him a question about it. And she's like, well, why couldn't you get off world? And he couldn't pass the test. And I guess it goes to show us that that's what the goal is in this film, too, is really to get off world. Like, you don't want to be on world on world anymore um it's just one big dark rainy never-ending city it seems what's cool about jf sebastian and so in the book he goes by a different name and his character is actually completely different but they serve the same purpose so in the book he's what they call a special which is somebody with lower mental abilities he lives out in the suburbs in this huge apartment building thousands of apartments completely alone and the androids come across him and even though he they're manipulating him he finds purpose in that interaction with them and in finding potentially friends and even love in the case of pris where in the movie of course jf sebastian is smart he's a genius in some respects he's he serves the same purpose in the sense that he's just this lonely person who's looking for a friend i like the fact that we get to see his intelligence and Roy's intelligence kind of combine. There's a the really great scene when they are going to meet Tyrell, where Roy has taken him to the tower, and they use chess here as almost like a metaphor. Uh-huh. Sebastian's playing this chess game with Tyrell, and so um, it's like they're they're he's making moves, and it's it's showing us that that's exactly what they're doing. You know, Roy is using Sebastian as this piece to make a move to get closer to the king. And then, of course, it all comes down to the whole checkmate scene, right? Roy is displaying that he just is, he has this high level of intelligence, this high level of thinking that uh, none of the other ones seem to. And Sebastian kind of comes along with that, even though he's he's got that classic uh, like loner syndrome. And then he's he's very socially awkward where where he he knows what he's doing but he's kind of just he's like he he knows it's wrong but he really wants friends so bad and he wants to feel loved and be part of something so much that it's kind of like yeah maybe i should go along with it yeah and so speaking of that scene i really like 
the guy who plays Tyrell. His name is Joe Turkle. I just wanted to give him a quick shout out because he was in uh, The Shining by Stanley Kubrick as Lloyd the bartender, which is one of my favorite movies as well. He really portrays this sort of, he's not necessarily a bad guy. He's just, he's like the Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein of this movie. He's created this thing that has now been made illegal on the earth and he's proud of his creation, but it's ultimately his downfall. And I think he, he communicates that very, very well. He does. And, you know, he even says it in the very, very beginning when he's first introduced to Deckard and he tells him it's all about commerce. It's a typical, you know, situation of business for this guy. You know, yes, he's interested in creating, but he's doing it because of the lucrativeness of the business. It's not simply about creating these beings to cherish and to give them them like I mentioned earlier to give them rights they're created to be slaves they are nothing more than just worker bees for us or pawns Rachel's an assistant she's an experiment I guess you would say which is why I think it's really cool if you take the Deckard as a replicant viewpoint because Deckard has exhibiting these qualities of a replicant that are actually indistinguishable he can't have super strength because that would give it away. You know, he can't have some of these other qualities that the replicants have. He has to be to the T indisputably human. And and he is. Okay. So let's go ahead and move on from characters to music, which I don't have a lot to say about, but do you have anything specific to say about the music? I really like it. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, an iconic score by any means, but you get your typical, you know, how did you say his name? I've always called him Vangelis, but I think you called, you said it's pronounced differently. Then. Well, I said Vangelis. That's how I've always said it in my head. So I don't know if that's correct either. So for all I know, you might be right. Okay. Well, that guy that did Chariots of Fire, <laughs> <laughs> um, who, you know, made a name for himself using that synthesized tone in a very odd setting, really assisted along with the cinematography in setting this up for something that would become... Uh, it's a marker for other films that they have used. So these film noir sci-fi films kind of have trended toward this synthy manner in the future. And it's very fitting for the setting that we have. I mean, we have, you know, the darkness is all inclusive everywhere. It's, it's this whole film is dark. In fact, I started to watch it again in the daylight and I had to stop myself because it's like, this is not going to work. You can't watch this with any kind of glare on your screen. You, you, you have to watch it in the dark. And the way that it's depicted, you know, as if it's like this, it's almost like a Neo-Tokyo more than a L.A. um, with its different cultures and the lights and the big signs. The music to me fits it perfectly. I think it was moody when it needed to be moody. It felt film noir when it needed to, but it wasn't anything that jumped off the screen at me and made me go want to buy the soundtrack. Right. Well, I do have the soundtrack, haven't listened to it much yet, but what I do have written down is that you're right, it does fit the film very well. And the standout moments to me that really jumped out at me, there's of course the very beginning when we're seeing the the cityscape and there's these bursts of flame out of the rooftops and it's sort of driven by this technological energy, but as we hear more throughout the film, there's this melancholy to it. So we have this propulsion that's fitting of the sort of futuristic setting But in the same sense, there's a sadness to it and this sort of desperation to it where all these people are 
are living in these really not great conditions. The corporations have sort of taken over. Most of the Earth's population has gone off world. And there's this fear of these replicants and uh, the people who hunt them being a concern as well. And so I think the music fits that very well. And it's very obviously the same guy who did Chariots of Fire. It's got the same synthy sound, which I think is cool. And yeah, it, it just works. And that's what's important. Okay, so the last bit of this discussion will probably be another several minutes just because we're moving on to relevance and the themes and the questions and the ideas presented in this movie, which we've talked about a little bit as far as the characters go, but I think there's a lot more. So the first thing I've written down is the idea of what makes a human. Yep, that's, that is the crux. I mean, that is what it's all about here. I guess if we're trying to answer that question, uh, you can go many different ways. I mean, you can take a biological uh, look at that and you can say, well, a human is one that's made of blood and tendons and organs. That's a human. And you can take a faith-based slant um, on what is a human. Well, a human is a soul, something with a soul uh, given to it by a higher power. You can take the emotional slant of, of what we were discussing earlier. You know, human is what its actions are. You know, it's defined by its choices, by its mercy, by its um, choices of to create and not destroy. And so I think that's what's great about it is that there's no real answer to that question that I don't think that the film preaches a qu- an answer to the question. No, it wants you to sort of look at your own life and sort of define for yourself is what I'm doing human is what I'm doing living and sort of making decisions based on your outcome of that question. Absolutely. That's what Roy's speech is all about. You know, it's about, I've done this, this, and this. You know, I've had all of these incredible moments in time that I can remember and I can look back on and say, you know, that was me experiencing life or me interacting with life and experiencing art or just living. And, you know, that's comparing itself to Deckard, who's just, all we know of him is that he lives alone in a dark hole and doesn't have much of a life. He doesn't have any person in his life. It's got that great question posed to you of, of which one do you want to be? You know, who do you want to be like in this situation? Do you want to be like the android or do you want to be like the quote unquote human? And I think, I think most people would say they want to live life to the fullest. I actually, actually have a tattoo that is very similar to this. It's a, it, I have a tattoo that says burn, burn, burn. I don't know if you're familiar with that quote, but it's from a Jack Kerouac book. And it's part of a quote that is speaking to this exact thing about living with passion. It's about being full of life at all times. And that that's what being alive is is all about. It's about burning. It's about being on fire and experiencing the things around you, being present and not removed, which in this day and age, in this culture, is an epidemic. I mean, how often do you see an entire table of four people sitting at a dinner and every single one of them is on a cell phone. That's kind of where this movie is asking us, is that what it means to be human? And if, if that's what being human is, if that's the kind of things that, that we want to hang our hat on, then is that really what we want to be? Another theme I've written down is the idea of reality versus fiction. A big part of this movie is sort of eyes. We see this scene where Roy and Leon interrogate the guy who manufactures the android's eyes. And through him, they see 
the next place to go. So he's sort of a window, both in the, the sense that his eyes, he, he created their eyes and through him, they are seeing their next step, which is just a sort of interesting parallel. But also the fact that Tyrell hides his eyes behind these like trifocals. He's distant. He He's focused on the idea of technology and he's hidden behind his glasses the whole time um, until his eyes are gouged out. And then the the biggest tell as far as eyes go, occasionally we see this sort of glowing in the eyes of the replicants. That That's the giveaway. Even in the owl that we see at the Tyrell Corporation where... Yeah, it's yellow. Yeah, so th- there's this idea of eyes being a window into sort of who you are or what you are. And also the idea that not everything you see can be trusted. We have these replicants that are almost identical to humans and you have to go through this extensive test in order to be able to tell them apart. Yeah, you know, actually that's not something I've ever thought about before and it makes me want to rewatch it now <laughs> again just to have that perspective and look for that. The opening scene does the same thing. Right. There's, an, there's an eyeball. I believe it's, I think it might be Roy's. It's either Roy or Deckard, but it's big and bright and blue. So I'm thinking it's probably Roy that we see the opening landscape uh, reflected onto this big eyeball a couple of times just briefly cuts into that scene um, and, you're, and you're right you know it's it's used in a way that parallels it perfectly and is is moving the story forward it's very good the scene where Roy does go meet Tyrell is the other big you know thematic part of the whole question of I guess humanity not necessarily what it means to be alive but the idea that if we were to climb the tower to heaven and meet our own creator, what would we ask for? I think that most people would probably ask for something similar to what Roy's asking for. You know, he meets him, he says, I want more life, father. How much simpler does it get than that? You know, he's simply asking to live. He's not asking for wealth. He's not asking for status and fame. He just wants to live. He's, he knows he has, I mean, Goodness gracious, imagine if we had a timer on us that would tell us when we were going to die like this guy does. There was a whole film about that. I think it's called About Time. I can't remember. I think I know which one you're talking about. His uh, Justin Timberlake and Amanda Seyfried. And there's a whole whole movie about that where you know the concept is you do know when you're going to die and you have this clock ticking. And that's what Roy's dealing with. So all of his actions are have to be, or you have to look at them and frame them with that context. And all he wants to do is live. You know, he doesn't want to kill Tyrell. It's almost like a gut reaction because he's done. There's nothing he can do now. And it's, it makes me think all the time about what would I do in that situation? You know, what, if I was to meet my maker, what would I want and what would I ask for? And what would I expect I, what I love about this movie is that the replicants aren't the bad guys. It, ultimately, yeah, they do some bad things, but they are very sympathetic in what their desires are and what their end goal is. They're not looking to take over the world. They're not looking to kill people. Yes, that happens, but their goal is just to live. They want longer lives. They want to be able to experience the world. They want to go on beyond four years, uh, which is reasonable. I think, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> um, but 
ultimately impossible in their situation. And so I love that it's not clear cut, good guy, bad guy. In fact, you could say the bad guy here is probably Tyrell and the the corporation that sought to create the replicants in the first place. But yeah, I think that's a, a great touch by the filmmakers to not really make the bad guys, quote unquote, actual bad guys. Right. I think that's a very important uh, thing to note. Um, and it's it's part of what makes this special for me because the characters just, they're not one note here and they're not cookie cutter and they have so much depth to them. You know, I, I think about this question of would I ask for more life? And I know that the answer is yes. But then on the other side of that, I think to myself, well, why is four years not enough? Right? Right. You know, the, a human has a, d- a designated lifespan as well. We can't go to our creator and get more life. Inherently, both humans and replicants can't overcome the qualities that are given to them by their creators. They're still going to die. We're all going to die. It's just a matter of when and what we do with it in that time. And that's why I prefer the ending of the final cut. And that's why most people prefer the ending of the final cut, because that's what it's about. It's about Deckard making that choice to go with Rachel and to live is what we would assume. Do you have any other themes or ideas or takeaways from this movie? Um, No, not, not really, not thematically. I do want to mention just how incredible the cinematography is to me. This is right up there with one of my favorite shot films ever. The way that the future noir is presented, it's just nailed in all aspects. The, the tone of the film the lighting, things like the umbra- you're in a city that it seems to endlessly rain and everybody's carrying these umbrellas and they have a light stick on the handle because it's always dark. Those little touches, um, the, the design of the spinner cars, I think is really cool. The film noiriness of the detective's office and going in there, there's a fan in the background of his office that seems to be in every noir film. There's you know, a bottle of scotch or whatever on his desk, which seems to be in every noir film. Somebody's smoking, you know, <laughs> in every noir film. There's, it just, it really nails the blend of science fiction and noir and is told in such a way that is not really focused on the detective story side of it. It goes more into the sci-fi story of it, but it's got this coding of detective story over it. And it's just, it's just brilliant. I love it more every time I see it. Yeah, and I think that's definitely one of Ridley Scott's greatest strengths is his world building and his ability to frame a scene and really feel like you're there and that it feels authentic and uh, have a reason behind everything that's there. So he, yes, it's it's present in all of his movies and it's very, very strong here, which is great because it's actually one of his earliest, if not his first films. The only other themes that I had written down very quick, um, I had the idea of technological advancement versus the deterioration of earth they're obviously in a very high-tech society but you have homeless people in the streets you have something that's obviously wrong with the planet and people have left and are leaving actively and it's just this idea that technology sometimes it's cool sometimes it's not always the answer and who knows maybe it might be our downfall (laughs) it you know it very well may be i i think i would be remiss if i don't briefly say one of my newest entries or one of the newest entries in my personal top 50 movies of all time list, Blade Runner's in my top five. Uh, But one of my newest entries is Ex Machina from last year. And it's so similar in a lot of ways 
to this idea of exploration and, and AI that I think that it's a great pairing to watch a modern version of this kind of story. And so I would put that out to your listeners that, you know, watch these two back to back or on back to back nights, watch Blade Runner and Ex Machina. And I think you would have a really cool experience that would make you think for the next several weeks. And it, it might give you a little of a headache, but uh, <laughs> you know, take a couple of aspirin with some scotch like Deckard would do and you'll be okay. Yeah, definitely. And that's uh, something that I want to try sometime. And just real quick, I also have the idea of the rights of slaves or clones and uh, that sort of idea is explored. You know, these replicants are created by people. Does that mean that they are property of these people? Does it mean that they have rights because they can live and feel and experience or what does it mean? And so that there's not an answer provided in the film, of course, but it's, it's another idea that's presented. And uh, I, I think that's it as far as themes and relevance go for me. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I wonder where the animals went. Did you notice there, there really are no animals and the only animal talk we get is about the snake and there's a, a very very intriguing throwaway line almost that Zora has where we learn that she says you know having a real snake is way more expensive than having this robotic snake and that just that just blew me away <laughs> I, that was one something that was something new to me this viewing that I had not caught before and it just made me wonder like where are the animals and why are they why is it that a real snake would ever cost more than some completely look real looking authentic android snake. Well, I actually have an answer for that because it's in the book. So Yay. in World War Terminus, it ruined much of the world. There's radiation everywhere. They refer to it as like a dust that has settled all over the world. In fact, all the men have to wear like these lead cod pieces to sort of protect their fertility. And if you don't leave the earth off world to go to Mars or to wherever else they've left their colonies, you risk the danger of never being able to leave off-world because you've been contaminated by the Earth for too long. And as a result of that, and the radiation and the dust that's everywhere, most animals have gone extinct. In fact, owls and birds are like the very first thing because they, they are in the air, of course, and sort of have that first-hand exposure to the radiation. So that's the owl reference that's in the Tyrell Corporation scene. And the animals have a very strong representation in the book because what the idea is taking care of an animal is an expression of your empathy and it's a sort of symbol of status. So the title of the book is called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Well, in the book, Deckard is actually married and he and his wife own an electric sheep because they can't afford a real sheep. Their real sheep that they owned previously died from tetanus. And so he owns this electric sheep and he feels shame that he only has this electric sheep. And there's one point in the book where he actually, after killing three androids and getting his bounty from that, he goes and he buys a goat. And he's really happy that he has this goat. And it's a real goat, not an electric one. And so the, the animals are seen as a symbol of status if you're able to take care of a real animal. In fact, if you don't have an animal at all, electric or real, you're sort of looked down upon in society. Wow, that is awesome. And I'm I'm glad that I brought that up and asked the question because... That's some great background that I didn't have personally. Yeah, it's really um, cool. And I'll be, I love that the owl means something. I just thought it was just a, you know, cool choice that Tyrell personally, you know, liked the owl. Uh, but that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. I don't want to spoil too much of the book for those who might want to read it. But in that scene in the book where he goes to Tyrell, which is actually named something else, but it's beside the point. So he goes to the corporation, he tests Rachel 
And they originally tell him, your test failed, you're wrong, she's actually a human. And so they try to bribe him. They say, you know, we won't tell your superiors that your test was wrong if we'll give you this owl. And they claim it's a real owl. And in actuality, they're swindling him because, of course, it's fake. Owls are extinct. And uh, that's a sort of little background behind that scene. Very, very cool. Yeah, the book is definitely worth reading. It's And it's not terribly long either. Not if you knocked it out today along with another viewing in the movie. <laughs> Any other final thoughts? Nope. I just appreciate being able to talk about this one. Yeah, and so my final thoughts, it's a sci-fi movie that you can just enjoy as a sci-fi movie. That's sort of what I did the first time around, but me being somebody who loves film and loves diving into film... I realized after my first viewing, you know, this is so much more than just a sci-fi movie. And so I wanted to understand more. I wanted to take away more. And that's why I did so eagerly dive into the book and into the movie again. So I think that's what's really great about this. It's And that's what's great about sci-fi in general. You know, this is the probably second or third episode in a row on the show where we've talked about a sci-fi movie. And that's just because sci-fi asks questions and that's what's so great about it. And this movie does it better than a lot of other sci-fi movies. And there's so much depth to it here. Do you have any sort of thoughts on the sequel that's being developed at the moment? Well, I'm extremely excited for it. Cautiously optimistic, nervous, lots of different feelings. These 30 year later sequels and remakes and reboots and various types, you know, they can go many different directions. The fact that Harrison Ford is attached is encouraging I love Ryan Gosling and the idea of Ryan Gosling in a film noir type of film. I'm, I think of him, I'm uh, imagining something along the lines of like his role in Drive. I think that he's going to be an amazing fit. And then they just cast Jared Leto, which I adore Leto as an actor. Um, not it's not so much the person, but <laughs> as an actor, I think he's just phenomenal. And, you know, he can provide something that's very, very special for this. And the director, I think is an awesome up and comer. Uh, it's it's Dennis Villanueva or Nuevo. I don't know yeah. how you pronounce his last name, uh, but he did Sicario, and I believe he did Prisoners uh, a few years back. Um, and he's got a great sci-fi movie coming out this year called Arrival. So I'm excited to check that one out and kind of get myself even more pumped to see if you know if he can handle sci-fi in a nice, intelligent way because that's what this new one coming out is supposed to do. So. I'm really hopeful, man. I want it to be good, but, uh, you know, like I said, we'll judge it when it, when it hits. Yeah. I'm definitely interested as well. Um, the cast list, a lot of it does look promising. The director is promising Harrison Ford being back is interesting because what I've heard or read is that it does take place decades later. So it sort of makes me wonder, did, is he an Android that maybe lasts for a lot longer than four years? Does he not have that fail safe kicked in or is he a human? And I wonder if they'll sort of maybe try to answer that question a little bit more head on in the sequel. I'd be surprised if they don't. I think that's probably going to be their most tricky challenge is to dance around that question and get an answer out that all fans are going to love. So I, that's, that's where I'm most scared, honestly, uh, because you can't, you can't please everybody. Right. And right now Blade Runner is able to please everybody because you get to have your own opinion. But the moment that you put it on film as a decisive answer, you know, half of your population or viewers now have to change their viewpoint. And uh, that's scary. <laughs> right. Well, thankfully, we always have Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, standing on its own and providing us with all these excellent questions. 
And with that, we wrap up the official fourth episode of Cinescope. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. It's been awesome. Thank you for having me. So contact for the show is at facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast or on Twitter at Cinescope Pod. Please rate review on iTunes. I don't want to go on too much about it, even though I do every week. It's just really important that if you want this show to grow and to find more listeners, share with people you love and rate and review on iTunes. That's the best way to help. Email feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that email address or any of the other forms of contact to talk to me about maybe co-hosting in the future like Aaron just did. If you have a movie that you love, movie that you think you can talk about for a little while, let me know. I'd love to fit you into the schedule and have you on a future episode of the show. Aaron, where can people find you online? I can be found all across the internet at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can find my podcast at Feelin Film, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M. Also Twitter, Facebook, FeelinFilm.com. The usual places if you're interested in something similar to what Chad is doing here. And I, I just want to agree with you one more time and say that I love your your format, Chad, of what, you, what you're doing and the idea of having different voices come in and co-host with you. The idea of having people talking about movies that they love and they're passionate about, that's something I want to listen to, that I want to hear. And so I'm pumped that you're doing this project, <laughs> and I, I, I always can't wait to see what you are dropping next. So I hope everybody else feels the same way and is hitting that subscribe button because I don't know what he's going to do next, but I know that I want to hear it. Thank you very much, Aaron. That means a lot. And definitely check out Feel and Film. Uh, what's cool about Feel and Film is that they do reveal, er, review older and newer releases. So there's even an episode of Suicide Squad and Sing Street and more recent titles that have just been in theaters. So if you want some more recent reviews in what we're going to do on this show, definitely go over to Feel and Film for some great positivity there as well. And remember, for me personally, the best place is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And of course, all of these show notes, all this contact information can be found on the website at thecinescopepodcast.com. That's all for this week. Thanks again, Aaron. It's been awesome having you on. Thank you everyone for listening to episode four. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode five. Have fun and celebrate movies. That's a wrap.